out of John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Please pray with me. Jesus, we invite you into this place this morning, God. We invite your presence into here, God, and we just ask for you to show up this morning. God, I pray that you would anoint Steve, God, as he preaches the word this morning, Father. And just as Nicodemus was confused about how to be born again, I pray that you would give us revelation this morning and what it means, God, to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, God, and not of the flesh. Lord, we love you, and we are expectant of you to show up this morning, Father. I pray that you bring conviction where conviction needs to be brought, Lord. And I pray that you would touch every single heart that is in this place this morning. We love you. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. It is great to see you today. I know that we may have some some visitors, I've met a few folks who are here for the first or second time today, and I am so grateful uh, that, uh, that you could feel welcome in this place. We want you to feel like this is home. Uh, I think on our website it says something simple like, we are a young church for all ages, right? We are a new church, uh, but we want to welcome all people in here. So let's give it up and welcome one another today. Say, say that you're excited that everybody's here today. Some of you guys are wondering, did I miss something? Are they changing it up? What is going on here? Things are, you're just all thrown off as the world gone topsy-turvy. Um, no, we're going to just move some things around here today in our service. And uh, so don't be alarmed at all. I want to share with you today um, from the text that we read. And I want to uh, just kind of talk with you about the series that we're in. And then we're going to get to our, our uh, we're going to worship in, in the, the Lord and giving at the end of the service today. And we have some other things to kind of share with you about um, our springtime calendar. So it's just going to be a, a great morning together. And one of the things that I've learned over the years is when people are a little sleepy, when they're coming a little off, you know what? Don't, you know, like, let's, let's, let's go ahead and let's have, let's get right to the point. That's what we're doing today. We're getting right to the point. Every week when we get here, we want to worship God. These are the two big things, worship of the Lord and then ministry of the word. That's what it is. Worship and the word, everything else just kind of orbits around that. But these two things are the pillars of our Sunday morning experiences. So that's what we're doing first today. Now, we are in the middle of a series called The Jesus Story. And the reason we're doing this is because there is no more important character for us to study in the Scripture than Jesus. The reason for this is because by Jesus' own testimony, he said something like this, if you've seen me, you've seen your heavenly Father. 
Now, that's a pretty powerful statement, and it got him in some deep water with some folks. Some, some, uh, he got, created a little bit of heat between him and some of the religious folks of the day because they understood very clearly what he was saying, was that he was the perfect and final, the ultimate revelation or window, if you will, into the person of God. So when we understand Jesus, we understand God better. Now, we're going through the Jesus story as we lead up to the Easter resurrection celebration, and that's what we're going to be doing on uh, April 21st. We're going to actually have church here, just so you know. Church, Easter Sunday, we're going to be here. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Last week, we talked about Jesus' first sign from the Gospel of John. We talked about Jesus turning water into wine and the significance of that, how important it was that we recognize that Jesus was willing to go because he was invited to that wedding at Cana. So if you missed that and you want to go back and listen to it, you're always welcome to go back to our podcast, find it on our website, or search for it uh, on iTunes or any of the other places where you can get your podcast downloads. Um, This week, we're talking about Nicodemus. The title of my sermon this week is Nick at Night, for those of you who are old enough and or young enough to remember that. Nicodemus is an interesting character. We know something about him from the text And we even have sources from outside of the Bible that describe him and that list Nicodemus as a a man of considerable influence at this time in Jerusalem. He's one of a small group of people who are calling the shots for the nation of Israel. He's well-connected, he's powerful, he's educated, and he's established. So he is establishment through and through, right? But he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, the Bible says, with some questions. And I love this because Jesus does not turn him away. You find a lot of interactions that Jesus is have, having throughout the Gospel of John and with the other four, the, sorry, the other three biographies of Jesus' life called the Gospels. We find a lot of different people interacting with Jesus, and many of them are doubting, some of them are uncertain. They're seeking, they're looking, and Jesus is always willing to patiently hear them out, even when their motives aren't altogether on the up and up. So I want to make this statement today before we get into anything else, just so that you you guys who are coming here today can understand something really important about Jesus and about our faith as Christians. It's this, questions are not the enemy of faith. They're not the enemy of faith. Some of you have been made to feel that way. Don't, don't, don't question this. Don't ask that question. That's a scary question for you. To, some of you guys have, have felt that maybe you can't bring up the questions that you have. But look at, what, look at the interaction that we have with Nicodemus here and the patience with which Jesus is hearing Nicodemus out and his questions and those others that we see who are asking Jesus questions in the gospel stories, in the Jesus stories. It's amazing. He never turns them down. There are some of you here who have questions about the Christian faith. You have doubts, perhaps, or uncertainties. I want to suggest that you are exactly in the right place today. Coming to church is not the place that you don't wait until you've got all that sorted out and figured out and perfectly lined up before you come to church. You come to church, you're in the right place even when you have those doubts and those uncertainties. As a matter of fact, I would say questions or doubts, they aren't a disqualifier. Matter of fact, doubt is a partner in faith. Now, some of you guys are like, now you're really getting on thin ice, Steve, okay? Because what I'm really trying to say is 
You need some doubt. You need some questions to make sure that your faith is not just um, some sort of, you know, well-constructed illusion. The bottom line is faith without questions is like walking around Chicagoland without any antibodies in your body. <laughs> okay? Sometimes I'll ride the train to Chicago. And when I do, um, you, 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 have this, you have this question, which car am I going to ride? Now, if you're a commuter here, you have a car probably. You have a car. You probably even have a seat that you like to get to. But if you're just, you know, an occasional train rider, you're looking at all the cars, and you choose the car based on whatever you're feeling of the day. You don't want those weird white seats in there for those of you guys who ride the Metro. Okay? But, um, you know, you, 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 you choose that train, but no matter what car I get on, it always seems like there is at least one guy in there who has a combination of pneumonia and bird flu and the black plague, and, but he still has to get to work, okay? He cannot miss work that day, but he is basically coughing and sharing that whole germ cocktail with everybody in this big metal box that we're sitting in together for 45 minutes, and I'm holding my breath trying not to catch whatever that he is throwing my way. But the reason that I'm not going to get sick during that experience is going to be because at some point I was actually introduced to those germs somewhere else. And by being introduced to those germs, my body developed antibodies or a defense against those germs and found a way to deal with that. And I want to say this. Questions are what produce the answers that are the antibodies in our faith. If we don't ask questions, if we don't acknowledge our doubts, then we're never going to be able to actually arrive at a point of deeper understanding and greater certainty. Those questions are the voices that call us to examine our beliefs, to ask the hard questions that lead to better answers or maybe even to new questions. So the goal of faith is not to remove all doubt from our lives, but to patiently listen to doubt and to grow through the dialogue. That's really good, you guys. You missed a great opportunity to say amen. Some of you guys are like, okay. <laughs> so every struggle that I have in my life with questions or with uncertainties has always led me to a, a deeper, more vibrant, and more honest faith. That's why I am who I am today. It's not because somehow I was gifted on high with some faith. That isn't it. It's that I listened to my questions and to my doubts, and I... And I, and I entered into dialogue with what it means with, with the scriptures and in prayer and seeking and, and watch what happens as, as my faith doesn't grow deeper and more vibrant and more robust. My questions even today haven't ended. They've only developed along with my faith. Now, when I approach the Christian faith and when you approach the Christian faith, you are not being asked to divorce your intellect or your mind from your faith. Just the opposite. The Christian faith actually invites us to search out, to question, to doubt, to critique, because at the center of it is this one really important point, and it's this. All truth can handle scrutiny. Real truth can handle scrutiny. Teenagers in the house, you know, when your parents doubt you where you were at last night, but you know that you were there, you're not lying to them, right? And they're like, but I didn't know. You weren't supposed to. I was there, but you would you're like, just, just call him up. Call up her mom if you want. You know what? You, you, like inv you invite the scrutiny at that moment because you know if they search it out, they're going to find that you're telling the truth because truth can handle scrutiny. So my advice to you is if you're questioning, seeking, doubting, keep going back to Jesus. Talk to people who have walked with Jesus. Keep seeking 
just in the same way that Nicodemus did. He meets Jesus at night, and he's seeking some answers. But he does have an agenda. He's been sent, I think. He's kind of approaching Jesus to make a deal, all right? He goes to him, and he tells him. I I like this because he speaks in the plural. He says, we know. We know you are a teacher from God. So he's talking about we. Nicodemus is representing they, right? <laughs> he's, he's the they in this equation. And he's basically saying, hey, young man, Jesus, we want to play ball with you. <laughs> we, we, you could help us, and we think we could help you. But he doesn't realize that he's outclassed in this conversation, right? Jesus responds and says, listen, buddy. I've got a few things to say to you. And I, I will tell you this. Many of us have, have tried this bargaining posture with God before. We've, we've talked to God like this. We said, God, I've, I, I've, got, I've got some ways that I could help you. I think you could help me, right? <laughs> Let's make a deal. Um, you know, I've got some great ideas about my life, and I think you could really help me out. And how many of us have ever done that before? There's a lot of people who I've met who have attended church for a long time who still think that God has, has applied somehow to be their assistant, Right? Instead of the way that we worship and the way we talk about him, when we talk about surrender, that makes some of us uncomfortable because instinctively we want to to be the boss of our own lives. But Jesus is not content to, to deal with Nicodemus on this level. He says, no, I've got a few things to say. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever you see truly, truly in the Gospels, that means Jesus is about to dunk on somebody, okay? That's what he's about to do. Truly, I say to you, He says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. Now, there are a lot of phrases in our lives that carry some freight with them. We could call it semantic baggage, the, you know, the baggage that certain phrases. I've been in settings where this born again phrase is problematic, right? I've been in settings listening to other conversations where people say, oh, well, she's a born again Christian. And that means, oh, (laughs) because... (laughs) They have an idea in their head. That, that, that phrase alone carries some baggage. It means don't invite them to the party. <laughs> don't invite them into conversations about religion or anything else. You know, she's a born-again, oh, we get it, right? And it's not really truly connected to what Jesus is actually saying. There are surveys that have shown that 70 to 80% of Americans would rather not have a born-again Christian for a neighbor <laughs> and definitely not at their block party. There are myths, I think, that have led to this. There is obviously some behavior on the part of people who profess to be born again that has also led to this. But let me just kind of talk about why we get this idea mixed up. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is having a tough time understanding it. We do too, right? So here's the first myth, and there's only two. So you know it's Time Change Sunday. So I didn't, I didn't go for like ten myths. I went for two myths, okay? Myth number one, being born again is only for the down and out. That's the first myth. This one is popular in our culture because it says that, hey, being born again is for people who need that sort of thing, right? (laughs) Like convicts or addicts or people who've hit rock bottom, right? And it reduces being born again to some kind of cathartic experience where the guilt or the shame is lifted up and you feel like a different person and now you can get up and pick yourself up from being on rock bottom and start to put your life back together. Well, there's some truth to this, but it's definitely not the whole truth. It falls apart, you see, when we look at the person to whom this phrase was first offered (laughs) because Nicodemus was not down and out. (laughs) 
He was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was old and respected. He was a man in a culture where men were exceptionally privileged. He had a PhD from an Ivy League school. He was wealthy. He was the definition of the cultural elite. He never said to Jesus, Jesus, I I need meaning in my life. I'm broken emotionally and I just need some help. I, I just, it's my last shot. I'm down to the, to the very bottom of the barrel. He doesn't say that, but Jesus still looks at him and says, you must be born again. Right? When we hear the preacher talk, this is me too, a lot of times I think, oh, that's great. Tell him. Or if I'm sitting next to Jesse, tell her. <laughs> Right? We all have, that, we all have that, that, uh, that habit of thinking that this, is applied to, this needs to be applied to somebody else. But Nicodemus is the only guy in this conversation. Jesus is not talking to anybody else. He's saying, you must be born again. It's interesting. In our day, there's all kinds of evidence that scholars and researchers have kind of produced that shows that the problems in our urban areas are most effectively addressed by faith-based organizations. The data is in, and it says very plainly, faith-based programs are empirically more effective at dealing with violence and poverty and other places in in, uh, communities that are under-resourced. And so researchers and Ivy League authors say, hey, let's, let's, let's not scorn these religious approaches because these broken people, for them, this born again stuff is working. Right? That's what, that's, what, that's what they're saying. But Jesus turns everything upside down from 2,000 years ago, and instead of addressing the broken people, he's actually addressing the researcher and the Ivy League author, and he says, no, 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 you must be born again. You might have a lot of letters after your name. You may have a lot of zeros in your net worth. You might have influence and authority. You might be respected by your family or by your peers, but you still must be born again. Myth number two, being born again is only for the buttoned up. You you say, Steve, that's going to require a little bit of definition. I'm going to give it to you. (laughs) These are the people who need rules to to keep their life on track, right? Religion for them is a great way to keep them on the straight and narrow. They like to have that order in their life. It's for people who who just kind of need that sort of thing. But Nicodemus is already as buttoned up as a person can be. He's a Pharisee. They have thousands, literally thousands of rules that they have memorized to follow, a right and a wrong way to do just about everything in their day. And Jesus is essentially at this moment tearing down that whole system of rules, tearing down that whole system of regulations and saying, you need to throw that away, Nicodemus. If you tell somebody in our culture, you must be born again, they're going to think right away that you're telling them, hey, listen, don't drink, don't smoke. Uh, the, old, the old phrase was don't, don't drink, don't chew, or date girls who do. <laughs> Probably never heard that one, right? That's what everybody's going to think. When you say you must be born, they're thinking, oh, they're talking about you got to stop drinking, you got to stop smoking, you got to stop sleeping around, you got to stop doing all that stuff. That's what you're going to hear. That's what people are hearing when we say born again. But Jesus chooses the one person who isn't out there getting drunk, who isn't out there getting high, and, he sa- and who isn't out there sleeping around. He says, you must be born again. Being born again is not 
about moral achievement. It's not about moral excellence. As a matter of fact, it is a challenge to a religion of moral achievement. It's a challenge, listen to this, to the system that I like to, that we as human beings so often kind of want to leverage to our benefit to put God in our debt. To say, God, here's my spreadsheet of things that I've done for you. Now you owe me. And Jesus tears up the spreadsheet and says, that's not how we operate in the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Let me ask you a question then. If Nicodemus, who is the most impeccably moral person among us, if he needs to be born again, then who doesn't need to be born again? Because our instinct is to say, well, that's not for me. That's for that person over there because of what they do, right? Look at the passage. I love this. The first time that Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, he uses, depending on the translation, he uses around roughly 30 words. The second time that he responds to Jesus, he uses about 20 words. And then the, 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 the third and last time, he uses four words. <laughs> and then we never hear him talk again. It's almost like he's sparring with the wrong guy right here, right? He got into the, like I said, he's way outclassed in this conversation, and he's realizing it as Jesus is talking to him. Heard a story about a teacher who found one of her students making faces at some other students on the playground. So she smiled really sweetly at him, and, and she said, Bobby, when I was younger, I was told that if I made an ugly face, it could freeze and it would stay like that. And Bobby looked up and said, well, you can't say you weren't warned. <laughs> that's like, that's my example of clapback, right? <laughs> my example of engaging the wrong person. As, as the conversation continues, Jesus is kind of tearing down, very lovingly, I would say, tearing down Nicodemus' pride of birth, his sense of superiority, his self-assurance. Why is he doing all that? Why is he tearing it down? Because this is why. Because all of this achievement and all of this, all, of this, uh, all of this assurance has not actually gotten Nicodemus any closer to seeing the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the reason Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about this is because those things are actually standing as a barrier between him and the kingdom of God. See, it's possible for good works to become the obstacle to God's grace. It's possible for our own achievement to be the source or the problem in the equation that causes us to miss our need for a Savior. Something important here to be said about this. Tertullian, one of the, one of the early church fathers from North Africa, he was, uh, he's written quite a few things. You, you might, his most famous phrase that you have heard probably from Tertullian, whether you realize it or not, was he said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. Some of you guys have heard that phrase before. Many of you are like, I'd never heard that before. <laughs> but here's what he talked about when he was talking about his own life and his own conversion, his own experience coming to Christ. He said, my sin was all the more incurable because I didn't believe that I was a sinner. He was like saying... I had an obstacle, and it was my goodness, what I perceived to be my goodness. Nicodemus had done all this great stuff, but all of it was, was meant to elevate himself and the people that he loved. 
Now, we do the same thing. We do well so that we can benefit. We do good so that we can benefit ourselves or those that we love. And this is what's important for us to see today. If the root of our good works is selfish, then even the fruit, the good works themselves, have no real value. So, at my house growing up, we had a crabapple tree in the front yard. Crab apples are those little annoying things when I, I, we, I would try and mow the lawn. I remember mowing the lawn and having those things shoot out of the mower at about 40 miles an hour into my shin, right? And, and like, so they were annoying on that level. You could, as a kid, you were warned right away, do not eat those crab apples. They look like cute little apples, but they will make you sick right away if you eat them. So let me just tell you this. If we've got a crab apple tree in the front yard, but what we really want is Honeycrisp, which is the best. Everyone, everyone in the world knows that Honeycrisp is the best apple. If I want Honeycrisp instead, it doesn't make any sense for me to water and to cultivate the crabapple tree. <laughs> because all I'm going to do with the crabapple tree is get more crabapples. <laughs> so this is what Jesus is saying. If you want new fruit, then you need to get a new root. That's what he's saying. You must be born again because even the fruit of your life, even though you think it's good, it's got a selfish root. And so we've got to rip this whole thing up and start new. It's a pretty violent metaphor, this idea of being born again. I've attended one birth in my life besides my own. Yeah, this is when the music starts. <laughs> Love it, love it, love it. It's about to get really, like, serious. And Actually, this is not going to be serious. <laughs> I mean, in the middle of the whole thing, I tried to call it off. I was like, this is, we can't do this. <laughs> it's insanity. But now I know why there's a Mother's Day, right? Because, because having seen that whole process, I'm like, now I get it. Dads, yes. Dads, it's cool. We've got a swagger. We walk around. We're like, I, I'm a dad. I don't care what you think. I make my own people, right? That's the way we think about it. But it's the moms who really ought to get some credit. They're on a whole different level of achievement from the dads from the beginning. I would even say this. Stop calling your friends to wish them a happy birthday. Call their mom. That's what I'm saying. Because that's, if we're really honest about it, they didn't do anything to, to have a birthday. It was the mom. So call the mom up and be like, hey, thanks for, you know, for, for Joe's birthday. I appreciate that. Thank you for what you did, right? <laughs> we actually, speaking of this as an aside, we actually are going to be celebrating Mother's Day, May 12th. And as New City Church, we're going to have our very first baby dedications on Mother's Day. So if you have a baby or, a, or if you're about to have a baby that uh, it needs to be dedicated there on that day, that's what we practice as a church. We don't practice infant baptism. We believe that the Lord, the pattern in the scripture is to dedicate children to the Lord. And so that's what we're going to do on May 12th. It's going to be a huge day of rejoicing for us with our moms in the house, all right? Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need to start over. It's not just a renovation job. This is a teardown. It's not the emotional catharsis that we talked about. It's not the profound insight that you need to get. Jesus says, I didn't come to teach you, Nicodemus. I came to save you. I, I didn't come to give people a second chance. I came to give them a second birth. To tear the whole thing out and plant something brand new in their life so that new fruit would be produced. 
Don't get discouraged, though, if in your life, having been born again, you're like, you know what? I'm still struggling to see the fruit. Being born again is about living a whole new life. It's about living a whole new life. And so don't get discouraged if it takes you a while to learn about that whole new life. If, if you're awkward at first, I always say this, if you're not awkward at something, then you aren't growing. Don't be discouraged if you're a little shaky when you start out. Continue to learn. As a matter of fact, though we get freedom, instant freedom from the penalty of sin, it takes time in our lives to develop freedom from the patterns of sin that have been developed. So just be patient about that. As a matter of fact, there's a great story of another church father. When I say church father, that's, a, that's somebody in the first several hundred years of the church. So we actually have awesome writings from these, from these people from the first couple centuries after Jesus died. It's amazing to be able to read them and see that, how similar their stories are to ours. So this guy, St. Augustine, who you might have heard of, he, he tells the story of after he was a very well-to-do young man. He'd lived a life of, oh, I'm going to throw a big word, profligacy. He had, he'd really just lived a life of Jesus crazy. He was out there, he was out here partying all the time, right? And now he comes to Christ, and his whole life gets changed, and he's learning to be this new person, and he visits this city, and he sees this woman there who he used to go to these parties with. And as he passes her, she calls out to him and she says, Augustine, it is I. And he writes this. He says, I turned to her and I said, I know, but it is not I. I'm a different person now. And there are people in the house today who can tell the story of how radically their lives have been changed because they got a new root, because they were born again, because they changed. And it didn't matter whether they had letters after their name or a fat bank account or whether, whether or not they were, had it all together beforehand. What really mattered was they recognized their need to be born again. So what becomes a Nicodemus? Later on in the Gospel of John, we have the story of how he speaks out on Jesus' behalf to that other, that council of rulers in Jerusalem. So that's one little bit that we get. But then the most telling history that we get from John is this. After Jesus chooses to go to the cross where he is tortured and put to death, John says in chapter 19, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds in weight, and they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews." So here's what we see happen to Nicodemus. This rich old man, after have I just really believe, and I, there's other evidence to support this, I believe Nicodemus was born again. But from this text, I really believe it because Nicodemus did something that was reserved for just the lowest in society. Nicodemus comes this rich old man bearing 75 pounds of, of, this burial, of these burial spices and herbs to be able to, to basically anoint the body of Jesus as he's laid in a borrowed grave. 
And he does the work that is reserved for the lowest of society. You know how I see Nicodemus' heart change? Because he's willing to do that. Because he's willing to bear that body up and lay it down there. And though he didn't know it at the time, he was getting everything ready for that third day when his Lord and his Savior would rise up out of the grave and would declare that death has been defeated and sin has been defeated and would bring eternal life to all those who would believe. History says Nicodemus remained a follower of Jesus, and he used his wealth and his influence, this is true, to care for travelers and refugees in Jerusalem for the rest of his life. I want to tell you something today. You must be born again. You must be born again. The wonderful news is that we don't do the work right? The, the birth, that new birth, isn't ours to do the work. The Bible says that Jesus did all the work. You see, to have a baby be born, it's the mother who labors. It's the mother who bears the pain. And this is exactly what Jesus did for you and I. He suffered. He paid the price for my sin. He died, and he was raised to life again. And all you and I get to do is receive the gift.